Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. This week, on Super Bowl weekend, we'll look at the bold public witness of 49er quarterback Brock Purdy. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I talked to sports reporter Jason Romano, who has tracked with the young man's career. Nine days after he got injured, in the NFC Championship game in 2023, a year ago, against the Eagles. He's still praising God, talking about Jesus, giving glory to the Lord, and understanding that his identity and purpose is not found in football. We'll also talk about work. When it comes to work ethic, I think that the church is as bad or worse than the secular culture and how we ought to value work. We are workers, and God made us as workers because he is a worker and because we are made in his image. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of The Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday throughout the L.A. and San Diego areas in Southern California and available wherever you are in the nation via live stream at kkla.com and also through the KKLA app, available for Apple and Android devices. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on X or Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. It's Super Bowl weekend. I know I probably didn't need to tell you that. Whether you're a diehard fan of either the 49ers or the Chiefs, or you couldn't care less, it's hard to overlook what is still the single most high-profile sporting event of the year. And this year, Brock Purdy, the young quarterback for the 49ers, has caught the attention of a lot of people. Yes, by his performance on the field, but also by his bold profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Here's just one example of how he's interacted with the press. I mean, honestly, one of the things that you know I had been reading throughout the season was uh, Mark 8.34. talks about Jesus is telling his disciples, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And it also talks about um, if you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Mm. And so I think really that is just like I feel like the message of the whole season with all the stuff that had happened, coming in, playing, um, then having success um, and maintaining that success, getting to the playoffs and doing all these things that, you know, a rookie quarterback hadn't really done in NFL history. And with myself and like my mindset with it was exactly that, that verse that Jesus had told his disciples thousands of years ago. Um, and I didn't want to grip onto this life of, oh my gosh, I'm in the NFL. I have a starting quarterback role. I'm, you know, I, I can't lose it. That was, it was flipped. I was reminded, you know, um, what, what Jesus had to- told us um, thousands of years ago in terms of don't try to hold on to your life. You're going to lose it. Jason Romano is a veteran sports reporter, including 17 years with ESPN. Now he's with Sports Spectrum, where he hosts the Sports Spectrum podcast. Romano was my guest on my program. Hey, you know what? Uh, one of the things uh, that is 
I think always interesting and something I want everybody to know because you might have you're going to have family who is paying attention and there are other stories happening, personal stories. And from a Christian point of view, there's some great ones. The San Francisco yeah. quarterback, Brock Purdy, we just played a clip of him. You had him on your podcast. That's where that clip came from. He's very open about his faith. Tell us a little bit about him and his family and how that is something that Christians watching should be aware of. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, my relationship with the Purdy family goes back about five years. I had uh, Sean Purdy, Brock's dad, on our Sports Spectrum podcast in 2019 and didn't know a lot about him other than I had heard about his son, who was you know, a young quarterback at Iowa State, and he played professional baseball. Brock's dad, Sean, uh, all the way up to AAA and got drafted. He just never made it to the major league. So we told his story a little bit. And then you just kind of watch the evolution of his son in football. And Brock, you know, goes to Iowa State, does well, still not, you know, sure if he's going to be drafted. We actually talked to Brock in 2021 when he was still in college on Sports Spectrum and got to learn a little bit about the importance of Christ in his life, but also in his family's life. They've done an incredible job. Um, raising their three kids, uh, Sean and Carrie Birdie, have uh, to love Jesus and to follow the Lord. And it's been really fun to watch. And sports has been a big part of their lives as well. And then last year happened. And Brock gets drafted as the very last pick. Everybody knows the story. Uh, it's, it's really a God story when you look at it because he was not expected to make the team, much less play, much less start, uh, and lead the team like he did last year as a rookie. And then he got hurt. And he suffered a devastating injury that, you know, would have took a lot of people down. And that clip that you played is actually nine days after he got injured in the NFC championship game in 2023, a year ago hmm. against the Eagles. And so nine days later, he's still praising God, talking about Jesus, giving glory to the Lord and understanding that his identity and purpose is not found in football. Yeah. And so when you hear that, you understand there's a, there's a legit faith going on here because it's easy to do that when you win. And then Brock may win on Sunday and the Niners might be champs. But he's, he was doing this nine days after he suffered a devastating injury and a devastating loss. You know, uh, one of the things that we have shown on our program this year is there have been a lot of people who have won, of course, who give glory to God and talk about their faith. But it's also been inspiring to hear people who have lost who also have taken time to give glory to God or who have yeah. suffered. And that has been, uh, I think, it has been really great because you really get to know something about a person's faith too, when they give glory to God in all circumstances. That is usually the indicator for me, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, that they, that their faith is very real to them. Yeah. Because it, like I said, it's very easy to say, thank you, God, or the man upstairs or God is, God is good when you win. Very easy to do that. And I get why people do that. I would do that if I had success and an opportunity but it's when adversity comes, defeat comes, can you still see that God is on the throne and, and just how awesome he is and how good he is, even in those losses and those difficult times. And that's, that was beautiful to see for Brock a year ago, and it's nice to watch him full circle. I have no doubt on Sunday, if, if the Niners were to lose, I have no doubt that Brock would be the same guy that he was a year ago after he lost to the Eagles. There would be no doubt. It's such a powerful thing. There are other players, of course, who have uh, faith in the Lord. And, uh, you know, do, yeah. do, do each, does each team have a chaplain? They do. Every NFL team actually has a chaplain assigned to them. 
because the Chiefs have been in the Super Bowl four out of the last five years, we've gotten really uh, close and have grown to know about the faith within the Chiefs organization, starting with their owner, That's Clark right. Hunt, who's a open follower of Jesus. And then you get to their chaplain. And Marcellus Casey has been their chaplain for seven years. And uh, it's been fun to kind of hear him talk about not taking for granted the fact that they've had a lot of success winning a lot of games. But he and I spoke about, and his wife actually joined us too, uh, which is really fun because a lot of guys out there, a lot of sports fans out there don't understand that the wives of these chaplains are also very much involved in the ministry within the teams. Mm. And so Marcellus's wife is needing Bible studies and helping disciple some of the women, the, the wives and the, the players' wives, the coaches' wives, the girlfriends. And so it was really neat to see that it expands beyond just the chaplain. It's really a family thing. And um, yeah, God's been doing some cool things within the Chiefs organization. And there's a ton of players and coaches that are very open about their faith. Um, the guy to watch, I think, this year is their defensive coordinator, who is Steve Spagnuolo, who has been phenomenal. Uh, the Chiefs have won so many games this year based upon their defense. And he loves Jesus. We're going to hopefully run into him tonight and ask him a few questions. Uh, that we'll have up later this week, but it's been fun to watch, uh, you know, this Chiefs organization with all the success, but to see, you know, that there's a lot of faith and spirituality within the organization and the teams too. Yeah, so, I, I, I didn't think about that with players' wives and girlfriends and uh, how much of a yeah. significant ministry there has to be, uh, family ministry. And uh, I've got some experience with knowing some NFL players and the, the difficulties that go on and the the temptations and other stuff that goes along with being a professional athlete. So it's a, it's a major thing. Uh, I'm really glad to hear that. Why do, why do you think each team has a chaplain? That's such an interesting thing. You know, I asked this question to a few different older NFL players, and I think they just feel like, I don't know why the NFL may be more than other sports. Maybe it's the violent nature of the sport. Mm. But the spiritual side of things within the league is, is a very important thing. And, uh, you know, I think, when I talk to some of the chaplains, you know, they have to be mindful. There are people from other religions and other faiths and even, you know, other backgrounds. And you have to be mindful to be able to minister and to, to show the love of God to, to those people as well. That's right. But these chaplains, from what I know, you know, they're doing Bible studies. They're not doing the, like, you know, feel good studies or, you know, studies on the word hope. What does that mean? Like they're doing Bible studies. They're preaching the name of Jesus. Yeah. And it's really neat to see. And I love it. I think every NFL team, um, you know, there's only three or four that have full-time chaplains, but there are, there isn't a side chaplain and the access usually is pretty good for every person that's involved, you know, athletes in action, which is a great sports ministry mm -hmm. provides a lot of those chaplains for teams. And like I said, there's others that are, you know, kind of full-time within the program. So yeah, it's wonderful to see. The ministry opportunity, I sometimes wonder if, uh, however God plays this, do you ever think that maybe the winning team, it's because of somebody's testimony, like whatever God's doing that we wouldn't know for sure, but it's because there's somebody who's going to hear a Brock Purdy's testimony or a coach's testimony or somebody's testimony and who receives Christ that day. It'll be somebody in heaven who says, I received Christ because I watched the Super Bowl today. Wow. I mean, I guess when you when you put it that way, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why we're here, you know, like right. Sports Spectrum has been granted access for the last seven years to come out and, and cover the Super Bowl. And my goodness, if, if an opportunity for somebody to watch the game on Sunday and let's say the Niners win and Brock Purdy, you know, points to Christ 
and somebody gets saved because of that, like, oh my goodness, that'd be incredible. And, and God can do anything. So why not use the Super Bowl as a way to glorify his name? That's right. And, uh, I hope that happens and I hope it continues to happen. I hope that does. And, you know, I think one of the ways that happens more practically, there's you know, a you know, a mystical sense of what God might be doing, um, you know, with his providence and all of that. But I think in a practical way for people listening, and if you're listening and you're not into sports and you're thinking the Super Bowl, Schmooper Bowl, you know, I'm going to get dragged to this game maybe and have to watch it. You can realize that if there's a, the possibility of a testimony being shared, then bring your sports fan friend. And this is a way you can proactively take a look at the Super Bowl and say this is an event that is an opportunity to share my faith, to share who I am, and uh, to introduce somebody to the gospel in a way that um, is maybe hard with certain sports fans. Yes. It's, it's interesting because the whole idea of, of Jesus, you know, and, and talking about him can be taboo for a lot of people, but there are a lot of people searching. And if, and if listen, if one person came up to me this entire week and said, I want to talk to you more about this thing that you guys are doing in this Jesus, it's so worth it. And what an opportunity and, and Super Bowl, like I said, just this awesome opportunity to be able to point people to Christ. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited to see what the Lord does. Coming up, we'll look at work. We have, I think, a work ethic crisis. In the next segment of The Christian Outlook. Two weeks old in an iron lung, which is, you know, like a sealed oxygen unit fighting for my life. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe properly. I, and apparently I didn't make a sound um, from the day I was born because my lungs were all messed up. That's Martin Smith of Delirious sharing a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show in Southern California. Don't you find it refreshing to hear about athletes and leaders in 2024 with a Christian witness that is both bold but also very clear and Christ-centered? Brock Purdy's example is God-glorifying. What is also God-glorifying is the work ethic that got him there. And in our nation today, we have a work ethic crisis. David Bonson is the author of Full-Time, Work, and the Meaning of Life. He was a guest of Jerry Boyer on his Meeting of Minds podcast. In your entire life, have you ever heard a sermon against laziness? Every time I've asked that question of an audience, no hands have gone up. That's why this book is needed. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And I think that you could look at different synonyms of laziness from from sloth and, and irresponsibility and, and other things like that. And the answer is more or less the same. But let's just say someone raised their hand and said they have. I, I, I would be skeptical that it uh, would be a sermon that contained the forward, non-defensive, non-apologetic, direct, um, repeating a biblical emphasis on on work. That's really kind of what I, I tee up the book with in the introduction is that there's an issue of um, not not of bias, but of emphasis. We we uh, you know as we're recording it now, I'm sitting in New York City. My pastor here in the city is incredibly on board theologically with what 
you and I believe on this subject. And as I look around the pews on a Sunday morning or the folding chairs in the uh, school auditorium as logistics would have it, uh, I don't see a lot of lazy people. Mm. I mean, that's a a church uh, in a city known for having a lot of drivers, a lot of ambitious people. And I appreciate the cultural context of Manhattan being a little different. But when I look across the great majority of American evangelicalism, um, the notion that most pastors would have the context that a congregation in Manhattan would have of drivers, of strivers, of climbers, of producers, it would all be spoken of pejoratively. It would all be spoken of as a negative if they thought it existed. And this is, to me, what I really long set up for why I think the book is necessary. Um, I think most preachers are giving a sermon about work that doesn't apply to anyone in their congregation. They're not giving the sermon against laziness. They're not giving the sermon uh, with those very sarcastic verses in the book of Proverbs that people use as a rationale for not working more. They're giving a sermon about an idolatry that is totally unheard of to our generation, to particularly most young men. Um, uh, and, And I think that it's time we actually preach to what is relevant in the congregations. Interesting. So I think we... You're talking about these sarcastic denunciations. There's a lion outside. Yeah. You know, I have to stay in bed today. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you have a chapter that deals here with the data. I think if you look at American culture and the American economy in aggregate, we have, I think, a work ethic crisis. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? I do. And and if we, um, a lot of the things we're used to as Christians, identifying in contrast to the secular age, this is one that is completely, totally compatible with the secular age. In other words, I think that there is, for example, a crisis of sexuality, a crisis of gender, uh, nature, clarity, a crisis of sanctity of life in the society, but for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, the church is on the other side of those issues, and many uh, men and women of evangelical identification would be contrarian to those things. When it comes to work ethic, the crisis of work ethic, I think that the church is as bad or worse hmm. than the secular culture. So on sexual issues, we're countercultural. Right. We know lust is bad. We know that, you know, you're born in the right body. You shouldn't surgically alter yourself. We know that the taking of human life from the womb is a bad thing. We're countercultural on matters pertaining, say, to sexual ethics. But we're not countercultural. We the laziness, the anti-work Marxist assumptions that drive, say, universal basic income and the idea of productivity as a negative Evangelical Christians may well be worse than the world on that issue. Instead of countercultural, we are too much we're further in the direction than they are. Well, I, I agree completely, and, and it's something I make the case of in the book. I think that an unsaved 
financial executive, financier, hedge fund, private equity, investment bank, private wealth, trader, portfolio manager, the various white-collar positions are adjacent to my own profession and sector. I think there's a more Christian attitude towards work from the unsaved members of that community than there often is from the saved members of that community. But they have a work ethic. And they don't say things like, this is work I have to do so I can do the other work that matters in my life, like missions and like Sunday morning church and like counseling. They don't say things like that because their work really does matter. And in that sense, the common grace ends up sometimes becoming more powerful than the special grace. And it's very disheartening. Yeah. And I I wonder if there's kind of a self-reinforcing loop. If you've got an addiction to mediocrity, you'll preach mediocrity, you'll attract mediocrity, you'll have a mediocrity culture, which then becomes almost impossible to challenge. In other words, it's really hard for me to, to tell whether we have a theological problem or we have a sociological problem. I think we have both and they feed one another. So that if, so everyone comes to Christ, they come to Christ equally, right? They don't come to Christ with their value being determined by their economic productivity. And that somehow kind of become, there's an, there's an egalitarian aspect of that, right? So that egalitarianism then kind of spills over into economics. So yeah. our work doesn't matter in establishing our righteousness kind of becomes our work doesn't matter. Uh, and, and we're all equal before God in our salvation kind of comes down to, and we should all be equal in income. And if somebody starts rising in productivity a little too much, they're on the suspect list. Well, I prefer people not do bad theology as you do. But if one's going to do bad theology, I only wonder why it is so conveniently applied selectively. In other words, why do I not get to say, Look, my performance as a husband and father is not the basis of my salvation. And so I don't really want to hear about how bad of a dad or a husband I am. Those things are not my identity in Christ. And so, therefore, let's leave that out of the subject and not evaluate me as a husband or father, but rather just simply one who is saved. See, we never would say it. We'd never think it. And if we did, nobody would ever let us get away with it. But when it comes to our performance in the workforce, we not only allow it and enable it, but we, we downright encourage it. Coming up. We are workers and God made us as workers because he is a worker and because we are made in his image. More with David Bonson and Jerry Boyer when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com in five minutes. You will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. When we think about work, we often tend to think of work as part of the fall. That is, part of the curse that comes as a result of sin. Nearly as though work is a necessary evil. 
But that's not accurate and not biblical. Work, in a whole number of respects, may reflect the fall. It may be worse as a result of the fall, but work is good. Let's return to Jerry Boyer with David Bonson, talking about full-time work and the meaning of life. You know, made to bring up another book, but uh, N.T. Wright's new book, Into the Heart of Romans. Um, He talks about a theology of glory in the book of Romans, especially in chapter 8, which he sees as the heart of Romans. And he came recalcitrantly. He resisted this premise. He had a, one of his graduate students did her, her doctoral thesis, proving in great detail that doxa, glory, um, in the book of Romans, is not a reference to someday you go to heaven and then God is shiny and we're shiny in the beatific vision, you know, but instead that glory in Romans is a reference to restoring the original Adamic calling to be rulers of the earth. So, and the the linguistic argument was overwhelming that we're in our glory when we're doing what God put us here to do in the book of Genesis, which is to fill the earth and subdue it. By the way, you have a chapter on Genesis um, in this, chapter three of this book. You want to talk a little bit about the book of Genesis and how it informs what you're saying? Yeah, much like I um, came to the conclusion with my study of economics uh, some time ago, um, I decided to start at the beginning of the Bible. And I believe that our understanding of work it has to start at the beginning of the Bible because I believe that the fall presents a prima facie complexity that one could make the argument, I will say it's errant, but they could make the argument that the fall represented a point at which work became a curse and work became poisonous and unattractive and and uh, that sort of necessary evil that we now have to deal with on this side of glory. And because Genesis 1 gives us a glimpse at God's created purposes before the fall into Genesis 2, of course. I started the book there. And much like my views of human anthropology colored, I I was always a student of Hayek. I was a student of Amesis. I was a student of Milton Friedman. Um, There's so many unsaved economic uh, giants out there that influenced me a lot, but I never had a taste of economics the way I did when I understood Genesis and the human person as being created by God in his image with dignity and what that meant for what I believe about human action. So I sort of figured out that I had adopted what Vamesis referred to as praxeology, a logic of human action that I was very committed to. And I think it was very accurate to understand economics that way. I think Menger really gave us a really wonderful truth about subjective theory of value. These things were profoundly important to me, but I don't think that those guys have any ability to anchor it to a standard that holds up to uh, intelligibility. And being raised in Greg Bonson's home, being, being raised Vantillion, being raised with a certain epistemology before I ever knew the word epistemology— mm. And so when I look at the subject of work, I want to start with the foundation from which other dots start getting drawn. 
And I believe that what you see in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that is often referred to as the cultural mandate passages, I think it's something far even greater than the way it's been applied. I think it is a passage on vocational calling that directly links our cultivation, our stewardship, our dominion, our hierarchy over the animal and plant kingdom, a lot of these things that we accept and understand, but it links it to these attributes we share with God, that God, we are workers and God made us as workers because he is a worker Hmm. and because we are made in his image. And then that is a universal. Um, I believe the commandments for a work rest paradigm. I believe the six days shalt thou work and do all thy labor. But the seventh is a gift from God to us to rest modeled by he himself in the what? Genesis 1 creation account. This wasn't made up at Exodus 20. It was was a byproduct of pre-fall reality. And so that set the stage in, in the third chapter of my book for my theological basis for work as something God created us to do straight from the garden. Coming up, work and rest. There is something about refusing to rest that is a little bit of an idol of our own making. In the next segment of The Christian Outlook, stay with us. And one by one, I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, start having children. And especially as a woman, I felt like there was a certain timeline that these things needed to happen in my life. Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. I hope you've enjoyed and have been challenged by this conversation on work. David Bonson is, very deliberately, pushing back on some of the false notions about work, that work really doesn't matter. The important stuff in life is all the stuff besides work. Let's catch a few more minutes of Jerry Boyer and David Bonson on Full Time. The human calling is the dominion mandate. What you say is work is the meaning of our life. Yeah. So that might be the most controversial thing. Well, you know, it's it's controversial if, if it's going to be misrepresented, which you would never do. And, and I think most uh, readers of the book won't do. But I mean, I'm also perfectly willing to accept that some people could mean something by that statement that would be wrong. And so I mean very specific context when I refer to work being the meaning of our life. Now, is work more important than marriage? Well, I, I don't think those questions are super helpful, but I mean, I'm just to play along, I'm always happy to say no. But of course, God did not make everyone to get married. I think it's the norm, but we already know from the certain exceptions that are explicitly given to us in Scripture, there are some not given to. And if we say marriage is the purpose of life, or if we say falling in love is the purpose of life or the highest kind of ethereal experience one could have, then what we're saying is some people have no purpose in life because there's some people that were granted the gift of celibacy and were made not to be married. But uh, again, people could sort of say, well, those are exceptions, not the rule. 
But what my question would be is, um, who was made not to work? You say, well, a rich person. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And and you can say someone with real physical limitation. I don't agree with that. I think that the work that they're able to do and that we should expect of them is very different. But um, I don't accept that there are exceptions to this idea. Most people would not take my bait or fall into my trap of trying to say work is not the meaning of life because marriage is. What they would say is something even more meaningless, which is work is not the purpose of life. Our relationship with God is. And I would say I entirely agree. Now, do you believe that when I say work is the meaning of our life and our relationship with God is the most important thing in our life, that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Do you believe you can explain what that means without work? See, I've never heard anyone do it. No. To those who would say, yeah, but David, you have a successful financial practice. You're, you're speaking to other affluent white-collar corner office people. That's great if they have all this kind of um, reputation and status in their work. But, I mean, do you really think the same thing for a busboy? It's almost like the Apostle Paul was preemptively there to help me out before I ever had a chance to say a thing. Because he was the one who, almost belittling the objection, said, whether you eat or drink, Mm -hmm. do all to the glory of God. The smallest things, the most remedial things, eating and drinking. Paul was the one who said that from small to big things, we do all to the glory of God. And then another epistle in Ephesians saying that we were created to do this good work Mm -hmm. and used a very specific word for work when other words were available. And he chose the vocational context of work. Hmm. So I don't think that I'm saying anything for shock and awe purposes to say work is the meaning of life. I think it's the only logical explanation of the basic vocabulary of scripture. If work indeed is central to the meaning of our lives, that should not be taken to understand that work is all there is or that work is all we do. Adam Gustine recently wrote a piece titled, Sabbath is Not a Luxury Good. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Adam, I don't know, as I was reading your article today, I was thinking how hard it is for me to kind of look at myself or look at my culture because I'm, you know, the frog who's been, you know, slowly getting warmed by it. I mean, work, 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 work. But that's just the pace of life that at least I'm immersed in. Tell me about you. I I don't think you're wrong. I think that, you know, the demands of the world that we live in hit all of us in different ways. But, you know, those kinds of similarities are there. The pressure to perform, the pressure to produce. I think that's fairly common. If that's something we do to ourselves, if that's pressure we feel from, you know, people in particular, maybe it's our boss demanding those kinds of things, or just societal pressures. I I definitely don't think you're alone there. Mm -hmm. So, Adam, if Sabbath is a stop sign that we blow through regularly, you say, though, that Sabbath is an invitation to orient our lives around a different rhythm, yeah? Yeah, I I absolutely think that's true. I mean, Sabbath is at least from our sort of modern American perspective, pretty countercultural. You know, there's so many forces that tempt us to define our own value by what we can produce. And I think that Sabbath is actually calling that like mistaken belief into question, that God has like created this world for us to take delight in. And if that's true, then that 
frees us up to find our own value and worth in other things, something that might be a little more what God had in mind from the beginning. So you say that to you, you think that the Sabbath is God's invitation to say enough is enough. Enough what is enough? Yeah, I mean, I I think that Sabbath is a reminder to us that there is like a moral limit to what our bodies can produce. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the first time Sabbath is practiced in Scripture, God practices Sabbath first. Yeah. And, And the interesting thing to me is that, you know, I've heard Sabbath talked about in various ways my whole life, and and it's always kind of framed as like recuperation time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If God is the first to practice Sabbath, I don't think that's because God needed to recoup. <laughs> right. You know? Um, right. I don't think that it's because He just needed God some time alone. A, exactly. It's it's not a physical limit, but it might be a moral one because it, it may be that there is something about refusing to rest that is a little bit of an idol of our own making. You know, it yeah. is a it is an indication that maybe we believe that God hasn't given us enough. You know, it's like the people of Israel in the Old Testament going out on the seventh day to try and find more manna when God has said, I've given you enough on the sixth day. Mm-hmm. It's like a baked in lack of trust that what God has given is enough. And I think that's where Sabbath is that reminder that enough is enough. You know, there's a couple of ways you can talk about enough, like when my son does just enough to pass a class. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like a bare minimum way of thinking about it. I think we're tempted to think about God's enough like that. But actually, abundance, you might say, come over for dinner. We have more than enough. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that everybody's barely going to get fed. It means that at this table, there is plenty. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what Sabbath is a reminder of, that like when you stop, you can remind yourself that with God, there is plenty. Coming up. I think the Sabbath gives us the opportunity to see the world and our own lives with different lenses. A bit more on the rhythms of work and rest, work and worship, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. AM Radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM Radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM Radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. As we talk about the Sabbath today, let me make one point just briefly. You do not have to be a strict legalistic absolutist on the Sabbath to deliberately embrace the Lord's Day as a time that you set your to-do list aside and rest in Him. It is transformative. Let's pick up with more of John and Kathy and Adam Gustine. Give me some concrete ways. So let me back up and say that when uh, when my husband and I married, uh, he said the Sabbath was absolutely vital for him. And I, to be honest with you, had never really thought about it. I knew it was a mm-hmm. commandment, but I was like, you know, whatever. I, I can't mm-hmm. tell you how formative that's been on our family, on, you know, raising our kids, everything like that. I mean, I, it's just it's probably the single best thing I've learned from my husband over all these years is just the incredible value of it. So I've changed by observing the Sabbath. I'm a different person. Mm-hmm. Our kids are different. Our rhythm of life is different. How has observing the Sabbath changed you? Yeah, to me, 
I think the, the great possibility for, for many things in the Christian life is that when God does work in us, it helps us see the world. It helps us see our neighbor with maybe a different set of lenses than we saw before. And so, you know, in taking the Sabbath seriously, even just, you know, like this one day in seven idea uh, at, at our house, there are ways that, you know, our family tries to live into this in small ways. And this is not something we, we get perfectly. We certainly long for more of it. But the interesting thing to me is that in the ways that this happens at our house, so we try to refrain from what might be crassly be called chores <laughs> on the Sabbath, and, and we let that rest because we don't have to attend to it. You know, like there are, there are enough hours in the week to attend to these other things. But, but what that does is, if I'm being honest, that sometimes that creates a little like anxiety in me when I'm not attending to all these things that are going on in my head. But when I say it creates an opportunity, it creates an opportunity to ask a really important question about why that creates anxiety in me. What is it that, that not working is revealing about the way that I think about my own value and what I'm, you know, I, am I really obsessed with production and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. And then I think in, 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 in a community, if, if I need a, a day a week to rest, to uh, be restored by God. I'm not alone. That's true for everyone. And yet I look across my neighborhood, I look across my community, and I see tired and hungry and haggard people that don't have the quote-unquote luxury of taking a day off. What does it mean to be a neighbor that cares and loves and concerns? So when I, I think I think the Sabbath gives us the opportunity to see the world and our own lives with different lenses. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me point out real quick, Jerry Boyer's Meeting of Minds podcast is available at the Salem Podcast Network, as is the Christian Outlook. If you like the program and podcast, take a moment to share it with a friend. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. When she was just a girl Sleep.